Hi, Sarah. Hi, Alison. And this, of course, is Spotlight on France, a podcast from Radio France International in Paris, bringing you stories from France beyond the baguette. This week, we talked to one of France's top feminist journalists about how she's tackling institutional sexism in the media in France. And we have a visit with a shop owner running a risky business selling CBD cannabis in the very gray area of French law. But first, the great national debate is officially over, and the results are coming in. As a reminder, President Macron launched this debate back in December. It was in response to anti-government yellow vest protests, where it was clear there was huge dissatisfaction in France over taxes, social inequality, and Macron wanted to show that both he and the government were listening. So the idea was to channel that dissatisfaction into an orderly, well, debate. So there were four big themes, ecology, taxation, democracy, and public services with online questionnaires on all of these topics and hundreds of locally organized meetings all around the country. It was quite an operation, wasn't it? The president himself rolled up his sleeves. He took questions at some of these meetings. And the government is now trying to make sense of all the replies people have given. This week, Prime Minister Edouard Philippe addressed Parliament and revealed the first results. And surprise, surprise, it was about taxes. Notre pays a atteint aujourd'hui une sorte de tolérance fiscale zéro. Our country has reached a kind of zero tolerance for taxes, he says. The debates clearly showed the path we need to take. We must lower taxes and lower them faster. There was criticism coming from the opposition and from Yellow Vest protesters. This isn't a solution. It doesn't address their core grievances, they said. Which seems weird, doesn't it? Because the Yellow Vest movement was set off in the first place by concerns over taxes, taxes on diesel, the wealth tax. And the president is due to speak next week with more concrete solutions. But before that, Michael, what has the French press been saying about this debate? tax. Fiscal exasperation, as the Prime Minister put it, that was the central concern of nearly half of the online contributions to this debate. So the French want to pay less, especially VAT on essentials, and they'd also like to see a fairer distribution of the tax burden. So while just 4% are in favour of paying more tax, 75% also want to see less public spending. So How, it's a sort of yeah, it's a, weird, isn't it? A strange even... tension there, the sort of uh, squaring the circle that every government tries to face, cut back on government spending and keep the country running on less money. Weirdly, it sounds like exactly the kind of thing the government itself would like to do <laughs> that, the, that these people are asking for, right? Except that they want better services for less money. What did the papers tell us about some of the, the official numbers, about who had actually responded? Well, the official numbers were fairly clear. Something like a million and a half to two million people are supposed to have taken part in this uh, operation. 530,000 people left online messages. Le Monde has been analysing those and and they find that nearly half of them were, in fact, exact copies of previous messages. You could say that people were just simply uh, recycling uh, comments that they felt fairly reflected their own concerns. But some contributors actually repeated their own messages dozens or, in some cases, hundreds of times. So in a final count, uh, 255,003 people precisely wrote an original contribution to the debate and just 40,000 
of them actually addressed all four of the major themes. Right. So that really isn't very many, let's be honest. Well, of course, this is politics, so if you want to be negative, there's plenty to get your teeth into. The Prime Minister, Edouard Philippe, is happy that the Great Debate has at least allowed for a return to normal service, where people engage in polite discussion rather than in anonymous insult. And his main message is that it's now up to the Parliament to take the project forward. They've got to find ways of turning the opinions expressed during this debate into political action. In many ways, the hardest part of the job still remains to be done. Here on Spotlight on France, we want to try to draw your eye to things that you might not have heard if you don't follow the French media or if you don't understand French. Michael, you've come up with a story that asks, what's in a name? It's a study, right, that was covered by a lot of the French media this week. Yeah, carried out by the French National Institute for Demographic Studies. And it's a look at the first names chosen for their children by immigrant families. And the findings are interesting, a result which in the wrong hands could be very divisive. They took a sample of 22,000 people and the grandparents were called Farid, Ahmed, Rashid, Fatima or Khalija. You might say, ah, these are people from what we are politely supposed to call of a North African background. Or from indeed, Morocco, from Algeria. From yeah, Tunisia, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. So the report, which is written by two guys called uh, Baptiste and Patrick. Not uh, Farid. <laughs> <laughs> they compare these North African families with the descendants of the immediate post-war uh, immigrant population, which came mostly from Spain, Portugal and Italy. Their kids uh, very rapidly went from Antonio to Antoine. They adopted in one generation the French norms for the North Africans, for Sub-Saharan Africans and for Turkish populations here in France. It's taking about a generation longer. And interestingly, they're not choosing French names. They're choosing what uh, the authors call culturally neutral names. So things For example, like, like, what does that mean? Well, that means uh, their kids are being called Yanis or Sarah or Ines and Lina. So what does all this tell us? What does the study actually then tell us about, you know, names in France and, and immigrants in France? Well, it suggests what the authors of this report call an interesting strategy. Uh, the parents of North African background seem to be purposely choosing to internationalize their children uh, as, a, as a way perhaps of uh, concealing their ethnic background and that's a fairly grim commentary on what those parents must make of the openness and welcoming uh, nature of the dominant population. On the right wing, you have people that, like the pundit uh, Eric Zemmour, who says, no, 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 this is a sign that the North African population does not want to integrate itself into French society. But according to the commentator Hakim El Karoui, it's a good sign. He calls it cultural inventiveness, and he says that the evolution of individual names and the adoption of culturally neutral ones is actually a sign of social integration. Another week, another strike in France, Sarah, but this one is a bit different because volunteers from charity groups that work with migrants in Paris laid down tools on Tuesday 
who are protesting at how the city and the state have handled the so-called migrant crisis for the last three years. Now, during the height of the migrant crisis in 2016, you'll remember, there were several hundred people from countries like Syria, Afghanistan, Sudan, Eritrea, who were sleeping rough on the streets, especially in the north of Paris. It, it created a real public outcry, and, and the city ended up setting up an official camp in the north of Paris, an asylum processing center, but that's since been closed. And while the migrant crisis has calmed down, uh, charity groups who are providing food and support to people in Paris are finding that just as many people are on the streets now as they were uh, you know, at the height of the crisis, but they're being pushed to the outskirts of the city. Alex Geoffroy, she's a coordinator of uh, a charity called Utopia 56, and she told RFI she's baffled by the situation. The camps are more and more outside the city. Before it was more in the middle in the city, so it was more easy for the charities to come and help, for the journalists to come, for it to be more visible. It's weird because there used to be more than 10 times more people in 2015. The refugee crisis is over. There is about three times more housing solutions than before and still have the same amount of people on the streets. So despite promises to speed up the asylum process in France, Geoffroy and other charity workers who were on strike told us they feel the government is not taking the crisis sufficiently into account. And now it's time for our regular rendezvous with history. This week, 115 years ago, on April 8, 1904, France signed a series of formal agreements with Britain, ending almost a thousand years of on-again, off-again conflict. And it would seem that the best way to see eye-to-eye -eye was to carve up the rest of the world. It's mm. the Entente Cordiale. It laid out each country's colonial claims. In one of those agreements, France recognized Britain's rights to Egypt, while Britain recognized France's claim to Morocco. Another outlined, among other things, the spheres of influence in Siam, today's Thailand. And there was a strategy behind all of that, wasn't there, Sam? France determined that a kind of alliance or understanding with Britain could protect it from Germany, which was building up its own alliances in Europe. And of course, it's interesting to talk about Franco-British alliances today with the looming Brexit. Uh, France appears to be in the crosshairs. Yep, there isn't much of a Franco-British alliance at the moment. In fact, um, Emmanuel Macron struck out almost alone uh, over Brexit. He's been arguing that there had to be a short delay for the was going to be a delay at all. He even suggested that crashing out of the EU would be better than a long delay. Now, much of the British press has portrayed Macron over the last two days as being having a, a sort of punishing approach to, to the UK, sort of scuppering his own personal project for a stronger and more integrated Europe. Now, of course, just on, on Wednesday, the EU and Britain agreed to a six-month delay. That's longer than what the Prime Minister Theresa May was asking for. And so some saw that as a slap in the face for Macron, but he's called it a jolly good compromise. Uh, some kind of uh, entente cordiale, as we might say. Yeah, and a bit of entente cordiale with a bit of Brexit thrown in. I think that's, that sums it up. You know the Me Too movement, Sarah, you know, that started with harassment in the entertainment industry? Well, things aren't great for women in the media here in France either. In France, in February this year, the cover was blown on a private Facebook group of male journalists known as the Ligue du Lol, or the Laughing Out Loud League. They were operating a decade ago harassing some mainly women journalists online to such an extent that some actually abandoned their careers in journalism altogether. Yeah, it highlighted something that, that women journalists here have known about 
about for a long time, but it really brought it out to the surface. Totally. In Paris this weekend, a group called Prenons la Une, let's take the front page, that fights for gender equality in the media, is organizing the first ever national conference for women journalists. Its spokesperson is Lorraine Bastide. She's one of France's most famous feminist journalists. We come up to the conclusion we needed this because there were so many testimonies arriving to us as an association of journalists who were suffering from a, a wage gap, but also like glass ceiling, who couldn't access to bigger responsibilities, but also harassment and sexist aggression in their redactions, that we thought that we had to organize an horizontal discussion. Uh, as you probably know, in the feminist history, uh, solutions often come out from Uh, women meeting together and sharing their experience because when you share what you've gone through you are able to see what is part of the system and you understand how the same schemes are repeated over and over again so the idea was to share our experiences to come up with solutions. So Alison what's been her own experience as a journalist working in France? Well, she worked for Elle magazine for 10 years and she ended up as news editor there, so she did rather well. But as she told me, she was mainly surrounded by females, so she had a pretty positive experience. But then she went into TV. She got a job as a columnist on the primetime news and chat show Le Grand Journal. That was broadcast on the private channel Canal Plus and it was an eye-opener to say the least. I realized that as a woman on television, I was not expected to think much. I was more expected to smile. You know, they were not expecting me to bring some serious subject on the tables. And also, I wasn't really authorized to take part in the serious conversation. It was really hard for me to, like, you know, be able to interrupt and, and, and speak when the issue was interesting to me. But also I noticed that it was a daily program. It was a program that was supposed to comment on what was going on on the news. And I realized on the whole week... Maybe we would have like 20 guests come on the set and maybe three or four women out of all these guests. And so there really wasn't gender parity at no, all? No, not at all. And I was like, oh my God, there is this discrimination going on and I'm just realizing it right now. And whatsoever, the women, when they came on the set, they were often mansplained, <laughs> man-interrupted. Often after a while there was going to be a, a comic that would come on the set and make a comment about their dress or their hair, as usual. And that made me really angry. So you just stayed one season, right? Yeah, only one season. After three months I decided to create my own podcast. <laughs> You've created La Poudre. It's an in-depth interview with different women from all different backgrounds, but strong women with good stories, women that have been successful or that are defending a certain cause. And an in-depth interview that lasts, yeah, about an hour. So this is, you know, something that would be hard to imagine maybe on the radio. Yes. But it's become extremely successful as a podcast. You've had like four million listens since you founded it just over two years ago. Where is it fitting into the French landscape. Yeah, well, I'm really amazed when I see how, how many people listen to that photo when I launched it. I was hoping to get 5,000 listeners and that would have been like, you know, the, the, the sky to me. And it really, really quickly became a kind of a phenomenon uh, with people sharing it and commenting it a lot. And in a way, it's sad because La Poudre is nothing more than a one-hour space for a woman to speak. I mean, what I created is like so simple. Uh, it's just a place where women can speak about what they care about without being interrupted. And now many more podcasts have been created, and I'm so glad I kind of impulsed this feminist podcast movement in France. But at the beginning, it was incredible that people... Uh, found this so revolutionary, but I guess there was a very strong need for women voices in society. 
and it's very mathematical. A few months ago there was this uh, figure that came out, only 31% of voices of women on the radio and television in France where we needed women's stories, that's all. <laughs> and have you seen that this has had any kind of impact on mainstream media or do you think basically yes this is where women are going to head to podcasts mm. I think podcast is an incredible tool of freedom and I'm not surprised so many women journalists were, were inspired to create their own podcast because even when you try and push the walls from the inside you're always going to get a moment where the obstacles are going to be bigger than you uh, it's really really hard to make the media change especially in France where there is this big tradition of like institutional medias that were created after World War II and that were like, you know, supposed to carry all these values of, uh, you know, humanism and progressism. So it's very hard to criticize them. But there are also places where men are, are in charge a lot. And when you're a woman in this media, you can be a, a warrior, you can want to change the world, you always end up uh, yeah, a bit alone. It sounds like podcasts are the place to be. And I guess we're proof of that. <laughs> Though I would just add that we're working in public radio and both the head of RFI and the media group FMM that we belong to are women. This week, French Prime Minister Edouard Philippe said it'd be absurd not to look into legalizing medical marijuana. He said this on a trip to the Creuse, one of the poorest areas in France, where some farmers already grow industrial hemp. And they're looking into developing the production of cannabis for therapeutic purposes as well. Because marijuana is illegal in France, right? Indeed, yeah. France is one of the highest consumers of the drug, if not the highest in Europe, but it has some of the strictest drug laws. But in the last two years, there's been an interesting phenomenon, the opening of CBD shops selling a kind of cannabis for consumption that might be legal in France or maybe not. Police cracked down on a dozen of these shops in Paris last summer, but shops elsewhere in France have remained open. And I wanted to know what it was like to run a business in the face of such uncertainty. The handful of shops still open in Paris wouldn't speak to me on record. They were too scared. So I went farther afield to Caen, a city in Normandy about 15 kilometers from the coast. When you enter Maxime Brunet's coffee shop, it hits you, the smell. It's funky, skunky. There's a row of glass jars lined up on the counter full of hemp flowers. Names like Silver Bud, Swiss Cheese, Tropical Haze. The decor is part Amsterdam coffee shop, part Venice Beach, California pot shop. There are psychedelic posters on the walls. But despite the names, the look of the shop, the smell and appearance of the buds, this is not marijuana. CBD hemp is a strain that's been bred to contain CBD, or cannabidiol, and very little THC, which is the psychoactive compound in marijuana. It's what gets you high. A client comes in and asks for four grams. Brunet pours the flowers into a paper cup to weigh them on a small scale on the counter. And then he puts them into plastic baggies. The shop is full of other things besides flowers, in bottles and packages, CBD oils and liquids for e-cigarettes. There's prepackaged CBD hemp tea and boxes, CBD-infused honey, candies. A regular customer comes in, middle-aged man wearing a leather jacket. Brunet tells him about a new strain with 14% CBD. The customer asks about the THC content, 0.19%, and then he asks for 10 grams. Brunet fills a bag and staples instructions on brewing them into tea. 
On the tags and on signs throughout the store are notices, not to be smoked, though Brunet says what his clients do with the flowers is up to them. He says some people use CBD hemp to stop consuming the real thing. That's what he says he did personally. He says he has older customers buying ready-made teas or oils to use for pain or different disorders, but he's not allowed to say anything about the effects of CBD. We're not doctors or pharmacists, so we can't say it helps for this or that problem. Some people who come have multiple sclerosis or Crohn's disease, things like that. They saw online that CBD could be good for them. But the problem is that in France it's not recognized, so we can't say, tell them to take this or that herb. What he can say is that CBD can be relaxing, like herbal tea, because it's illegal to even promote marijuana in France. Even marijuana leaves can get you into trouble. The store's logo, for example, is a cannabis-looking leaf with five points. Real cannabis has seven. Our logo is not a cannabis leaf. That way it's less explicit. It's not encouraging drug use. It's a teapot with a leaf and not a cannabis leaf. Hemp is legal in France if it's grown for the industrial use of its fibers. It's the same plant as marijuana, cannabis, but with different properties. Notably, it has less THC, much less. French law allows for no more than 0.2% of THC in a hemp plant. Marijuana usually has about 14%. So CBD hemp with under 0.2% THC should be fine, right? Except that in 2018, the government's anti-drug mission came down hard on CBD products, saying they shouldn't have any THC at all. So for sellers, nothing's clear. And depending on where you open your business in France, police and prosecutors interpret the laws and directives differently. Dozens of CBD shops in Paris, for example, were shut down in July 2018. Others, though, have been allowed to stay open elsewhere. Brunet says that when he and his partners, his brother and father, decided to go into the CBD business, they knew it would be risky. They opened a first store in their hometown in Caen in July 2018, then one about an hour's drive east in Lisieux. They had no problems until November of that year, a few weeks after they opened a third store in Nantes in western France. Police showed up one morning. I wasn't there, but I saw on the security videos there were four or five officers and they seized just the flowers. Brunet was frustrated, but not worried, because he knew that the flowers didn't have more than the legal limit of THC in them. But there was a cost. He says that four kilos were confiscated with a resale value of about 40,000 euros. Then, in February of this year, police raided their fourth store in Le Mans a week after it opened. We opened at 11, and at 11.20 the police came in. They were in plain clothes. It was the narcotics division followed by the police commissioner and the vice prosecutor. They took everything, even the posters. And then they took me into detention with our security guard. Being detained was not a pleasant experience, even if, once again, Brunet says he was confident he had done nothing wrong. It's stressful. You don't really know what's going to happen. We were sure we were following the rules, but still, you end up detained with criminals. He says he has yet to receive a summons to court. He reopened the store a few days later. Even with the seizures and detentions, he says this remains a very lucrative business, though he and his family are still keeping their other businesses going because laws can change overnight, which is quite stressful. Every morning when you wake up or when you go to bed, you don't know what will happen the next day, tomorrow. They could come and shut us down. Or you might see on TV that that's it, the law has passed. That would be great. We'd be very happy. But it could also be the opposite. So we don't know where it's going.
Brunet doesn't hide the fact that he's holding out for marijuana to be legalized outright in France. And through his growing network of CBD shops, he hopes to be in a position to profit from it when it does. So where are we with this? France's neighbours have legalised marijuana. Uh, the UK has legalised it for medical purposes. Spain for personal recreational use. What about France? Well, France, it's not clear. Already on CBD, silence. A lawyer told me it appears as though the crackdown on the shops is because there's a real uncertainty in the law and prosecutors are dealing with it by basically cracking down on the shops. The government hasn't said anything, though, of course, as we heard earlier, the prime minister this week did raise the question of exploring medical cannabis, growing it in France. But as far as recreational use of marijuana. Ha, we'll have to see on that one. And that's it for this week. Spotlight on France is a production of Radio France International. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or you can listen on rfienglish.com. See you next week. Bye, Alison. Bye.